MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, October 5th, 2020. Today, Trump has been admitted to Walter Reed Medical Center with COVID and his condition is worsening. Or it's improving. Nobody knows. Brad Parscale told a friend he was under federal investigation just days before he barricaded himself in his Fort Lauderdale home, brandished a gun and threatened suicide. Tapes are released showing Melania is as much of a horrible person as we knew she was. Top aides accused Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton of bribery and other fuckery. And the Pennsylvania election chief finds that the nine discarded ballots were not voter fraud. I'm your host, A.G. As promised, the news is getting crazier as the election approaches. We are now just 29 days away from electing Biden and throwing Trump out on his ass. Trump has contracted COVID and was taken to Walter Reed Medical Center, and I'll be going over what we know and what we don't know. And Trump's health poses new constitutional and legal questions about what happens if he's incapacitated or dies prior to the election or before inauguration. And I'll be speaking with CNN legal analyst and former U.S. attorney Ellie Honig about those scenarios later in the show. I'll also be speaking with Democratic candidate for Virginia's 1st District, Qasem Rashid, for today's Flip It Blue segment. Truly an amazing candidate, very flippable district, so you don't want to miss that. And finally, I'll wrap up with our listener-submitted good news. If you want to submit some good news, personal or political, or a quarantine confession or any corrections, just head to dailybeanspod.com and click Contact. And my LSAT practice tests and prep materials have arrived. I will be taking a practice test before I do any studying to see where I'm at. I'm just going to, you know, uh, you know, put put forth a baseline there from where I need to go. I'll keep you posted on that uh, because, you know, when Peter Strzok, the top Russian spy hunter in history, tells you that you should be a lawyer in the Office of Legal Counsel for National Security Cyber Warfare Unit in the FBI, you take the LSATs. Uh, we do have a lot of news to get to, obviously, so let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. Trump has COVID. Or does he? How bad is it? Who knows? But he has definitely been taken to Walter Reed Medical Center, where he is no doubt receiving the best health care in the world through socialized medicine from the finest suckers and losers, quote unquote, that the military has to offer. But in all serious, uh, in all seriousness, Walter Reed is one of the best hospitals in the world with some of the most amazing health care providers our money can buy. I say our money because it's funded by taxpayers, purely government-run social medicine. So here's what we know. The Wall Street Journal reported Sunday afternoon that Trump actually had a positive test result Thursday with a rapid test. And uh, he told everyone to keep that on the down low. And then he took a second test and those results, a full test, a no-swab test, those results came back positive. And when the second test result came back, he announced... He had tested positive on Twitter. Then he was administered some supplemental oxygen, which we found out later, and was taken to Walter Reed aboard Marine One. Sources say the reason the helicopter waited for so long out on the White House lawn is because Trump was reluctant to go, uh, but, you know, was eventually talked into it. Keep in mind, uh, any one of these sources could be leaks from the White House of lies that they want us to know. They could be totally false. We don't know. Trump released a video from the White House saying he was going to Walter Reed. Um, and then he made the walk to Marine One, which was parked real close to the front door, you know, like when I pull up for my mom when we go out to eat. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, because he, uh, a lot of people are speculating he was on oxygen when he walked out uh, of his own accord to hop on the helicopter. Saturday, Dr. Conley uh, gave, uh, that's his doctor, White House doctor, gave a vague, vague press conference saying basically nothing other than lying about having administered supplemental oxygen, uh, again, something we learned later, and asserting that the president was great, everything's great. But Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, had told reporters off the record right after that press conference that the president's vital signs were bad, very concerning, when they decided that they needed to take him to the hospital. So who's telling the truth? Nobody knows. We learned that Trump had been given an experimental monoclonal antibody treatment, that isn't even approved for emergency use by the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, only compassionate use, which means at the very last, if you're dying, we'll, we'll let you go ahead and try this. He was also put on a cycle of remdesivir, an antiviral. And we do know that no one in history, of, in the history of medicine, has been given that combination of treatments. Um, then Sunday morning, Dr. Conley gave another press conference where he admitted the president had low blood oxygen levels before they took him to the hospital Friday, but would not say what his blood ox level was. He did say it might have been lower than 94. That's the usual cutoff for going to the hospital, which is why I think he threw that number out there. But certainly, he said, it certainly wasn't in the low 80s or anything like that. So that probably means it was. Uh, He also said the president got a lung scan, but only divulged the results were typical. Typical for what? A healthy adult, someone with COVID, a lizard that grew gills and breathes like a fish? Nobody knows. No information. He also said... uh, that in this second press conference that he did not divulge the blood oxygen information or the supplemental oxygen information in the previous press conference because he wanted to maintain a positive outlook, which sounds a lot like Trump admitting that he downplayed the virus, the seriousness of COVID, so we wouldn't panic, so he wouldn't cause a panic. And then Dr. Conley said this shit. He said, quote, I didn't want to give any information that might steer the course of illness in another direction. And in doing so, you know, it came off that we were trying to hide something, which wasn't necessarily true. So I think he's saying here he lied because he felt that, you know, saying bad things would actually make it bad. I, I don't understand. Maybe he just read The Secret. Good book for doctors. We also learned he's on a steroid medication, which is usually reserved for only the most serious and grave, uh, you know, dire circumstance, COVID patients who are having severe symptoms. That's like for when you're starting to have... Uh, uh, organs start shutting down. Your systems start shutting down. That's what that steroid's for. Then uh, the Trump family staged a really weird photo shoot from Walter Reed. And uh, these photos, some people are saying they look doctored. Some people don't believe they were taken. The 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 embedded information in there says they were taken 10 minutes apart, but in two different rooms. Uh, there's a close-up. Um, I think Andrew Feinberg put that out from the press pool of him signing a blank piece of paper with a Sharpie, and that was him doing some work. Of course, uh, the crotch fruit, the adult large children, tweeted that out. Look, he's working hard. No one sacrifices more. Uh, And the president wasn't wearing a mask, so the photographer in that room was at risk. Um, Yay. Because we know that the photographer was probably wearing a mask, but the mask more does more to prevent you from giving it to people than it does prevent you from getting it but maybe they had full ppe on i don't know but anyway there was other people in the room including there had to be secret service people and we did also learn this weekend that secret service people are complaining that trump is being reckless with their health and their family's health and meanwhile all weekend idiot trump supporters are driving by 
blaring their horns with absolutely no concern for the other patients in the hospital, many likely with PTSD, having to hear endless bullshit noise from the small dick brigade. And then today, the president decides to take a joyride. He gets in his motorcade and he cruises the streets to wave at his supporters, putting all the Secret Service members in that hermetically sealed vehicle and the drivers at risk and blocking the entrance to the hospital for other patients like an asshole. Bottom line, we have no idea how he's doing. He's clearly not on a ventilator, but it looked like he had an oxygen tube feed into his nose from under his mask when he was in the motorcade driving by. So he's not on a ventilator, but it's serious enough to have doctors throw the kitchen sink at him with all these drugs, the the remdesivir, the steroids, uh, the steroid treatment, and, of course, this... uh, uh, this antibody cocktail that he got um, from Regeneron. And that's, again, not, this is like they're throwing the sink at him. It's just weird. Like, the, <laughs> for somebody who doesn't, who's supposedly doing really well. But, you know, like I said, who knows how he's doing. I personally do not give a fuck if he's faking or if he's sick or if he's on the mend or if he's waning or waxing or gibbous. I don't know. But he will be on the ballot in November, no matter what happens to him. And we all need to keep our heads down and vote for Biden. His health does not impact our mission to vote his ass out of office. Even if he's incapacitated or if he dies, we still have to vote. Um, Trump will still be on the ballot. It is too late legally to replace him. Uh, And I'll have Ellie Honig later on in the show to talk about all the legal and consequential succession scenarios that we could go through. So you don't want to miss that. So you know all the different options that could present themselves in the coming week or weeks. Meanwhile... I personally don't think Trump is faking because all of the other assholes that have popped positive and are quarantining. The White House has more cases of COVID than New Zealand right now and South Korea combined. People from the Amy Coney Barrett Red Wedding are popping like flies, including Kellyanne Conway, Chris Christie, who's in the hospital, Hope Hicks, Melania Trump, Nick Luna. That's one of Trump's body men. (laughs) Uh, Republican Senator from Utah, Mike Lee, Republican Senator from North Carolina, Tom Tillis, and Republican Senator... Uh, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. Um, Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien, he's popped positive. And RNC chairwoman Ronna Romney McDaniel, she's positive. And we just learned a minute ago, Attorney General, uh, Attorney General Bill Barr is now quarantining after he and Kellyanne Conway practically licked each other at the Red Wedding. Uh, so while the Amy Coney Barrett event is clearly seemingly ground zero here, it's of note that there were some other events that could have... Uh, perpetuated this spread. Um, Note that the three Republican senators who tested positive also happened to be three of the senators helping launder Russian disinformation into the Senate. Mike Lee, Tom Tillis, both on the Senate Judiciary that questioned Jim Comey this week about a letter received from DNI Ratcliffe uh, and included uh, Russian intelligence that had been debunked two days earlier by the Senate Intelligence Committee, the bipartisan Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee, led by Marco Rubio. And the same information that the CIA, the NSA, and the Office of DNI warned Ratcliffe not to distribute, because it was fake. And Russia Ron Johnson, of course, for the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, who brought all the bullshit in from now-sanctioned Russian spy and colludy Rudy Knudler, Andrei Durkach. I wouldn't be surprised if all three of those Republicans had met clandestinely with Trump in close quarters to discuss the dissemination of Russian intelligence recently. And then, of course, there's the debate prep team, including Chris Christie, who was playing the part of Joe Biden during debate prep, in case you didn't know that. But I don't think 
that they'd be faking this because this puts the SCOTUS nomination in peril, even though Mitch McConnell is saying, you know, full steam ahead. We're going ahead with the vote. Schumer is saying delay the vote. You've got now two members on the Senate Judiciary who are positive and, and can't come in. And another member of the Senate, that's three, who can't vote in person on this nomination. But, you know, if they quarantine, they say they're going to quarantine for 10 days and then vote instead of the normal two weeks. So they're cutting the quarantine short. And you can't vote by proxy. You can't vote remotely in the Senate because of the rules Mitch set up because he wanted to force Democrats into the into the onto the Senate floor during during a pandemic like an asshole. And that's sort of backfiring on him. But even if you do quarantine for 14 days, that puts us at October 18th. That's still plenty of time before the election to push the nomination through unless more senators, uh, you know, test positive in the ensuing weeks. But I, I do think Schumer has a good argument that it's just dangerous right now, because given the the massive outbreak at the White House, uncontrolled, it's it's bananas. But in other news, here's what we're missing while all this bullshit is happening. Brad Parscale told friends he was under federal investigation just days before he barricaded himself in his house and threatened suicide and, and allegedly beat his wife. I tweeted uh, right when that shit went down, before the video even came out of him being taken down by the local police. I tweeted, I wonder if he got a target letter. You know, because people are like, don't make fun because, you know, mental health is a very serious issue. And I totally agree. You know, I have PTSD and and uh, GAD, general anxiety disorder and, and all that. So I 100 percent agree that mental health is a very, very serious problem. But sometimes dudes just, you know, um, <laughs> like, you know, like the warden from Shawshank, they warden Norton it. They just brandish it. It's like they're at the end of their line and they brandish a gun. So I was like, I wonder if he got a target letter and that's why he's doing this. And boom, means come true. He did get a target letter. Or, you know, at least he got a, a, a letter that he told his friends about. He didn't mention the letter to his friends, according to his the sources close to him. But he did mention to them a couple of days before this whole all thing, this whole thing went down that he was under federal investigation. So he got a notification. That's a target letter. That's right around the same day that he allegedly beat his wife, because two days later when he was arrested, she had bruises on her from two days prior or so. So that's happening with Brad Parscale. Of course, the Trump family, we've reported this, is afraid he's going to sing like Beverly Sills. And I think he will. <laughs> he's facing a lot of charges, not just for the assault uh, and domestic violence, but, you know, for all of the federal investigations or federal investigation that he is a target for right now. And in other news, tapes have been released showing Melania is as much of a horrible person as we thought. Let's take a listen. They say I'm, I'm complicit. I'm the same like him. I support him. I don't no. say enough. I don't do enough. No. Where, where I am, I put the, I'm working like a, Ask my ass I know. Christmas stuff that, you know, who gives a f about Christmas stuff and decoration, but I need to do it, right? Yeah, but correct. 100%. You have and no then, choice. And, okay, and then I do it, and I say that I'm working on Christmas, uh, planning for the Christmas, and they said, oh, what about the children that they were separated? Give me a f break. Don't, 
where, where they were saying anything when Obama did that. I know. They, they, I cannot go. I I was trying to get the, the kid reunited with the mom. I, I, I didn't have a chance. It needs to go through the process and through the law. So that's horrible. Um, that Just what a trash person. We, you know, we've never been... Uh, the podcast that sticks up for Melania, we've always known she's trash. Um, that just proves it. I'm sure more tapes will come out in the next 29 days. And seven top aides to Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton have accused him of bribery, abuse of office, and other potentially criminal offenses. This is according to a letter obtained Saturday by the Austin American Statesman publication and television station KVUE. Uh, this letter, signed by officials and dated Thursday, said it was a notice to Paxton's office that his aides had reported a potential violation of law by Paxton and the appropriate law enforcement authority has been notified. Quote, we have good faith to believe that the attorney general is violating federal and or state law, including prohibitions relating to improper influence, abuse of office, bribery, and other potential criminal offenses. Additional details on the allegations were not included. We will definitely keep you posted on this asshole, though. And... It appears that an election worker's decision to throw out nine military ballots in Wilkes-Barr, Pennsylvania, amounted to a mistake and not intentional fraud. This is according to the state's top election official on Wednesday. Workers in the election office in Luzerne County are getting training on handling mailed-in military and overseas ballots. Secretary of State, this is according to Secretary of State Kathy Bookvar, um, and she said that during an online news conference. Trump has repeatedly brought up the nine ballots as what he calls of evidence of election fraud, vote mail fraud in the past week, including two mentions during Tuesday night's presidential debate. The first or the president first mentioned the ballots during a radio show appearance on Thursday, hours before the Trump nominated U.S. attorney in Harrisburg, Dave Freed, put out a news release about the investigation. Jonathan Marks, the Pennsylvania deputy secretary for elections, said that in some cases, military and overseas ballots arrive in Luzerne County inside envelopes that do not clearly mark them as ballots. The usual process when those types of ballots arrive is to immediately reseal them and store them securely with other mail. Uh, and w- or excuse me, with other mail in an absentee ballots to await canvassing. So it sounds like it was confusion. The envelopes weren't marked as ballots. They opened them, went, oops, they're ballots, and got thrown away. Now, the Department of State is working on training for Luzerne County election workers on what to do when they find balloting material and sign an unmarked envelope. That's what we need tightened up, Marks said. The unidentified worker, who officials said was fired as a result, did not consult with others in the election office. Investigators have not explained who recovered the ballots, described by Freed as discarded, or the process by which the two of them were resealed. And neither Freed nor the FBI has said whether criminal charges are possible, and it's unclear whether those nine votes will be counted. But those are the ones that ended up in the river. Remember that ballots down by the river with the best of them. Little bridesmaids for you. Anyway, we'll be right back with the Flip It Blue segment where I will be speaking with the Democratic candidate for Virginia's first district, Qasem Rashid. And later, I'll be discussing all the possible succession scenarios and how they would impact the election with CNN legal analyst and former U.S. attorney Ellie Honig. So stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and today's episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by Allform. Allform is one of my absolute favorite companies supporting the podcast. They make the most beautiful, customizable furniture for every room in your home. These are the folks who bring you Helix mattresses. 
All Form crafts gorgeous, high-quality sofas and chairs to your specifications. They're so comfortable. And then they deliver them directly to you with fast, free shipping. You can customize your own sofa or loveseat or sectional using premium materials at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. Because with All Form, you pick your fabric, which is spill, stain, and scratch resistant, which is excellent for pod pets. You pick the color of the fabric, the finish of the legs, the sofa size, and the shape, all to make sure it's perfect for you and your home and your family. So I got a three-seater sofa. I put, I customized it with whiskey-colored leather, and I put a walnut leg finish on it to match the mid-century vibe and a chaise lounge on the side. I could never have had a leather couch with my cats, but because of the spill, stain, and scratch-resistant fabric, bingo, I did it. And it came in a couple days, put it together myself. I'm crazy about it. Uh, normally, if you want to order a new sofa, especially a custom one, it could take weeks or months, and you need someone to assemble it in your home. But all form takes just three to seven days to arrive in the mail, and you can assemble it yourself in a few minutes. No tools needed. All form has gorgeous armchairs and love seats, all the way up to eight seat sectionals. So there's something for everyone. You can always start small and buy more if you want to add on. If your family grows, you move into a bigger house. And best of all, you get a hundred days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. And what do you got to lose? Nothing. They also have a forever warranty, literally a forever warranty. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash daily beans. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners. That's allform.com slash daily beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time to flip it blue. I'm blue. And joining me today is Democratic candidate for Virginia's first district to the U.S. House of Representatives, Qasem Rashid, who is running against uh, Republican incumbent Rob Whitman. Qasem, welcome. Great to be here, Allison. How are you? Uh, I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, because this is such an important seat. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a seat that's kind of gone under the radar for a lot of reasons we can discuss, but uh, we feel really good about flipping it this year. Yeah, the chances are really, really good. And I know that the voter turnout is going to be huge in Virginia. So this is also a benefit. And we saw also what happened in 2018. And so I think the momentum is uh, on everyone's side here, at least on the on on the Blue, the blue side, the correct side. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so I want to ask you a little bit about your background because you have you have so much uh, uh, experience here. Human rights attorneys, supported women who are survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Tell me some of, about that and your pro, bo- pro bono immigration work. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think a lot of it goes back to just my childhood story. Right, I'm an immigrant to this country. I was four years old when we came here. Uh, left a country that persecutes for uh, for our faith, um, and you know this whole thing about equal justice and the Constitution is something that we talk a lot about. Um, for our parents, this element was something they took very seriously, and uh, I think we can all agree that while the Constitution talks about equal justice, we're not quite there yet. But um, we're you know fighting to be that more perfect union. Um, growing up, definitely had some struggles in our lives. Lived in Section Eight housing, food stamps, working since I was fifteen. Uh, you know, my brother at that time was enlisted in the U.S. Marines. Um, today, it was through my wife's support uh, that I went to law school at Richmond Law. And it was at Richmond Law that I really got involved in the human rights work. I started working pro bono um, at the Virginia Poverty Law Center, as you mentioned, their Office of Domestic and Sexual Violence, um, working with nonprofits to support children from, you know, just marginalized lower income communities to expand healthcare and education. And, you know, there's a certain point, and in, in, in those of your listeners who are lawyers or activists or advocates know what I'm talking about, that you feel this sense of just massive frustration and anger. 
because you're doing your best to provide support to those who have been marginalized or, you know, uh, kicked to the curb. But you realize that there are just broken systems, just unjust systems. The deck is just stacked against the middle class, against working families. And so for me, this is really about taking the work I've done in the trenches, on the front lines, and transforming it into better policy. And, you know, we're doing it the right way. We're not taking any corporate PAC money. We're fully people-funded, but endorsed by N Citizens United. And uh, we're, we're not getting into the mudslinging, you know, nastiness either of politics today. We really are leading with compassion and bringing folks together. And it's working. I mean, just earlier today, I was speaking to a guy who said, I'm an independent. I've only voted Republican my entire life. And I'm seeing the nastiness and the, just the, the trash he's throwing at you and your response with just decency. And so you got my vote. And I'm talking to all my Republican friends and they're seeing the same thing, too. So it's exciting and encouraging, and we're going to keep pushing uh, that uh, that messaging. Yeah, and, and to me, that always works in any endeavor, whether you're running for office, whether in your personal life or in business, is is to to work hard and be kind, and you're you'll be rewarded for that. And I think that um, that is not a lesson that the Republicans have learned. So, can you? Um, Tell us about the characteristics of Virginia's first district. What what is that district like? What are the constituents there? Um, what's the makeup? It, it is a very gerrymandered district, first of all, deliberately. And so one of the struggles is you've got um, just very different types of, of folks with different types of needs. So you've got some really well-developed suburban areas, some city areas, and then some really, really rural areas that are still struggling to get basic broadband internet access. And that's one of the main things that we're working um, uh, you know, diligently to, to make happen. Um, it has a massive military presence. I think it's the 12th most military populated and veteran populated district in the country. Um, we have three military bases here. And it's a, it's a really diverse district as well. I mean, it's, it's two thirds white, one third people of color, um, you know, I think like 18 or 19% black, seven or eight percent Hispanic, four or five percent Asian. Um, and, and if you go to younger uh, demographics under 40, it's like 55 percent white and 45 percent people of color. Um, so it, it really is, uh, in many ways, a microcosm of the United States. And um, you see a shift happening in the way people think about things. Uh, this is a district that, you know, seven years ago, the top Democrat uh, only got uh, 39% of the vote. He, he lost by 22 points. And um, then you shift, you know, fast forward to 2018 when Tim Kaine ran for re-election for the U.S. Senate. He got 48.5% of the vote in this district. And um, and we're, we're looking at those numbers and the data and we're seeing that folks are, are not, you know, jumping onto the Trump bandwagon as some of the other parts of the country are. Uh, and I think it's an overall testament to how Virginia is no longer a purple state. Now it's a solidly mm. blue state. Yeah. And that is just such a diverse and amazing district that I imagine that, and, and with so many veterans, active duty service members and veterans, I have to imagine that, first of all, equal justice under the law matters a lot to your constituents, as well as the way that Trump has treated veterans and talked about veterans and American war dead and, and active duty service members as losers and suckers. I imagine that hit your district pretty hard. Absolutely. And, you know, we have the, the really uh, unique advantage in that we prioritize veterans from the get go. This isn't like a talking point we brought on lately. At the very beginning of our campaign, we formed a veterans committee and they've been driving the narrative. Um, we just rolled out a Compassion for Veterans initiative, which addresses the issues of mental health and suicide prevention and poverty 
and readjusting to civilian life and, and providing educational resources and, and training resources just on a more robust level. And it's been extraordinarily well received. Um, it also helps that uh, my opponent has completely capitulated to Trump on everything. I mean, you know, you mentioned the suckers and losers comment. Uh, he said nothing about that when we found out about the bounties on our service members. Uh, he said nothing about that when Captain Crozier was fired for warning about the virus on his ship. He said nothing about that when Trump mocked traumatic brain injury. Uh, uh, he said nothing about that. So he's become just this, you know, puppet for, for Trump, which is really a shame because when you meet the guy, he's, he's a nice guy. I have like nothing personal against him. But when it comes to having a principle and taking a stand for what's right, um, you can guarantee he's going to do whatever Trump wants him to do rather than doing what's right. Mm, yeah. And when you can't stand up for our veterans and our active duty service members after all they've done to stand up for you, that just blows my mind. And you, you know, you have a brother who's a Marine. Yeah. Oh, trust me. I, I, I had the, I had the, the misfortune of having a brother who was a Marine when I was in high school and a cocky teenager. So I got my butt kicked left and right. <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, well, I'm really glad that you're working on veterans' issues. And, and speaking of mental health issues uh, for veterans, uh, health care right now in general is just such an important um, issue. Uh, I think it's the number one issue, at least for most of the uh, the candidates that I talk to, a lot of constituents, because, first of all, the pandemic, people are worried that Trump is arguing right now and the Republicans are arguing right now to strip us of our pre-existing condition protections and the entire Affordable Care Act, which was kicked millions off of insurance. And we're in a pandemic and a pandemic that could give us pre-existing conditions. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your uh, platform stand on health care. I'm a staunch supporter of the single care Medicare for all system. Um, I, I certainly support Joe Biden's plan to add a public option. I think it's a step in the right direction. But the reason why I support the single payer system is there's, there's a lot. But the three I think it really boils down to is one, just the immorality of the current model of 70,000 a year dying because of lack of access. Uh, half a million filing for medical bankruptcy. Um, these are all deliberate things being done by a broken system. And adding a public option is not going to necessarily solve that. Um, the second thing is, I, you know, I like choice. I like individual liberty. Um, I don't like to have to have your employment tied to your health care. Or if you want to start your own small business, you have to figure out health care and switch doctors. I, I like the ability to move around, do your own thing, uh, not have to worry about being limited to one network, in-network, out-network, all these hidden costs. Um, and a Medicare for All system uh, will do that while saving money. Uh, I mean, even the Koch brothers, for God's sake, their study sh uh, showed that over the next 10 years, a Medicare for All system is going to save us between 2 and $4 trillion compared to what we're spending um, right now. Um, and then, But then finally, I think the, the most important reason, in addition to what I've mentioned, is that um, it provides uh, better health care and we have the infrastructure already in place. Um, we already have a Medicare system in place. We're not talking about inventing a new wheel or reinventing the wheel. It's just expanding it and giving more folks access. And when you look at those states that have already expanded Medicaid, um, we see a microcosm of what happens when you ensure people have health care access. We've seen uh, drops in, in maternal fatality rates, drops in infant mortality rates, uh, rising life expectancies, uh, uh, drops in suicide rates, um, you know, drops in opioid addiction. So it, it makes sense that we make sure everyone has access, that our tax dollars go to support these basic fundamental and, and foundational uh, issues. So, you know, while I understand Joe Biden isn't there yet, um, it's not going to stop me from continuing to advocate for it, because I think at the end of the day, 
as the most advanced country in the world, it's the wealthiest country in the world. There's no logical reason why we're going to play with people's lives and put so many people in misery just so a couple of insurance executives can make a couple extra bucks. Yeah, but private health insurance is such a weird concept, right? Like imagine you're in your doctor's office, you go to your doctor's office, you have a discussion, you and and then uh, you just they decide you need some medicine, and then all of a sudden some guy in a suit comes in and says, hi, my name's Bob, and I'm going to be part of this transaction. You, I'm going to get you this and you that, and I I want to chunk. Uh, actually, I want you to add on to the cost of this visit and add on to the cost of this medication and give it to me. I'm your middleman here. It's like, what the hell are you even doing here? Well, I administer the claim. Get the fuck out. I'm sorry for swearing, but it just goes <laughs> on all that. It makes no sense at all. I mean, <laughs> it imagine, doesn't. Imagine if you had fire, in, you know, you call the fire department and then you have to argue with a different fire department on rates for them to come put out the fire in your house. Meanwhile, your house is burning down. Right. Like, why would we do that, right? right. So why mess? With your healthcare, you're having a heart attack and you're having to negotiate what the cheaper hospital to go to is. It's, it's just mind-numbing to me. I don't get it. it, it, it the, the impact on, on cost is, is immense. So uh, next up, I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the key issues that you talk about in your district, including broadband, access to broadband. Can you talk about that? So it really is a, a, a travesty, I think, that in 2020, um, Americans around the, around the nation don't have consistent broadband internet access. Um, we're 25th in the world in basic access. Wow. And a lot of that has to do with um, over the last 30 years, we have, and when I say we, I mean our elected officials, made a decision that rather than building out broadband as a utility like telephone or or water, um, they decided we're going to just give billion-dollar corporations billions of dollars and trust that they'll figure it out. Well, they haven't figured it out. We've we've sunk four hundred billion dollars into these major corporations, the, the Verizons and the you know the AT and T's and and the you know the the Comcast and so on and so forth. And according to Microsoft, only half the country has high-speed access. Um, so our view is that this is a foundational need. And especially in rural parts of the district, especially during this pandemic, when people can't travel and can't access, you simply cannot survive without having consistent and reliable Internet access. Um, so our position is that broadband Internet has to be a utility, uh, a utility that is accessible to all people and run by local municipalities. Um, hundreds of municipalities around the country have already done this. Chattanooga is a great example. Small city, 200,000 people. They implemented broadband as a utility a decade ago. And right now, Allison, they have one gigabyte speeds, which is incredible. And they've attracted major companies like Volkswagen to set up shop and, you know, create thousands and thousands of jobs. And all the studies show, I mean, the U.S. Department of Agriculture did a study last year that broadband as a utility would result in a $65 billion economic boost to our economy. Um, and right now, by not having it, our kids can't go to school. Our small businesses are stuck in 1990, if you're in rural parts of the district uh, or rural parts of the country, uh, telehealth is a pipe dream in rural parts because you can't get basic access. Um, and our, even our farmers aren't able to get the data they need to have an efficient uh, planting cycle. So it actually impacts climate change because they're using their tractors much more than they need to. So, you know, I, for me, this is the modern day rural electric, electrification act of 1936. Uh, my, my opponent's taken, I don't know, like 100,000 from Big Telecom. After 13 years, he hasn't passed a single bill on broadband, not even one. I mean, it's a joke at this point. And uh, he's he's promising that if you give him, you know, another five to 10 years, that we'll get broadband. And uh, it's it's, a, it's actually insulting with when you think about how many people are suffering right now. Um, and when you think about how simple it would be 
to just inject federal dollars into local municipalities to build up broadband and make sure that people have access. Mm. Yeah, that's that's it's it is bananas to me too. That I mean, it, so many things could be like you said, job creation, improved healthcare, access to education. Uh, it's 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 beyond me why this isn't a, a bigger issue for for Republicans. I'm so glad you're bringing it to the forefront. And then um, finally, I want to discuss before I let you go here, uh, criminal justice reform. Your thoughts on. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement and where we are with criminal justice reform and what you would bring to the United States House. Well, I think this goes back to, you know, we have to recognize that the criminal justice system isn't broken. It's working the way it was intended. And that's the problem. Um, the 13th Amendment never abolished slavery, it just relegated it to the prison system. So a system can't fail those it was never intended to protect in the first place. Um, so I take a really comprehensive view of this. I, you know, I think the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is a start. Uh, need to end qualified immunity and the responsibility on law enforcement officers to handle things like mental health and addiction. Uh, that's really where the conflict is, in my view. It's not just ending qualified immunity. I think if, if you end qualified immunity but don't remove these responsibilities from law enforcement, you're doing a disservice. Um, we need to ensure law enforcement is, is well-funded for things that they're trained for, like stopping violent crime. Um, but we also need to ensure that our public health resources are well-funded to have uh, a not not a law enforcement officer address things like a mental health crisis or uh, an addiction issue or you know school bullying or a domestic violence issue or suicide prevention. Um, uh, next, uh, we need to restore voting rights. Uh, this whole idea of, of taking voting rights away from incarcerated felons is is barbaric and archaic. It has no root in the founding of our country. It was established by uh, white supremacist ideology in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s when they realized that the abolitionist movement is gaining ground and, and, and these form, these current slaves may be able to vote one day. Um, and it has no rhyme or reason. So we need to ensure uh, that even if you're incarcerated, you can vote. The only reason I would think someone should be denied a right to vote is if they commit actual election fraud, in which case, you know, fine, you, you lose your right to vote. But otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and then finally, we talk about ending the war on drugs. Uh, decriminalizing marijuana, legalizing it, regulating it, making sure that tax revenue is first invested into the communities that were harmed uh, most. Um, these are all things that we need to to, to address comprehensively. Um, and, and then you know, and, and you know, to go back to broadband for a second, that plays a significant role too, because what we're seeing is broadband redlining, where they are uh, refusing to build out infrastructures into Black and Hispanic communities, therefore uh, further marginalizing Black and Hispanic communities, and, and creating just a vicious cycle that uh, that, that helps no one. Um, and, and folks like my opponent, unfortunately, are at the forefront of these really unjust policies. One thing we didn't even get a chance to talk about is with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, you know, we're, we're now at 210,000 deaths. You know, my opponent was one of those Republicans that when he learned of the pandemic, he bought himself pharmaceutical stock in COVID-19 treatment um, and then repeatedly told us the virus is low risk and not spreading. And, and now his strategy is to avoid debate. And, and really shamefully, you know, attack me for my faith. And, and so, you know, this is where these conversations are so critical. And our message to our constituents is that this is not about one election. This is really a referendum on the kind of country we want. Uh, I believe we want a country built on justice and compassion. And we need to go out there and organize and fight for it and make it happen. Yeah, I agree. It's up to us. So we all need to get out and vote. So can you tell um, our listeners 
where they can contribute to your campaign and also volunteer and learn more about your platform. Absolutely. So I'm on uh, social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at my name, Kasim Rashid. Our website is rashidforva.com. Our donation link is right there. We have a, a day of action tomorrow or on, on uh, you know, every weekend coming up um, where we've got people like Julian Castro and, and Tim Kaine and other you know, national leaders joining us. But uh, whether you can contribute five bucks or, or the max or uh, give us an hour of call time, uh, let us know. We'd love to have you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, everybody, I've been talking to Kasim Rashid. He is running as a Democratic candidate in Virginia's 1st District for U.S. House of Representatives, trying to unseat that incumbent Republican who's been there for 13 years, Rob Whitman. So I appreciate your time today, Kasim. I, please have a great weekend. You too, Allison. Thank you so much. Everybody, stick around. We'll be right back with the interview. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you've heard some of the trials and tribulations of the podcat Bruce Willis. There's been ups and downs, but my love for Bruce Willis will die hard. <laughs> I get it. Our bond is unbreakable. Uh, I do just about anything for that guy. Uh, but as much as I love my cat, I'm not fond of the litter box. It just makes the whole house smell. Everything from cleaning it to covering up the smell is always a constant battle. And that's why I just found this, and it's amazing. It's called Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter is a kitty litter, and it's reinvented. Unlike traditional litter, Pretty Litter's super light crystals trap odor and release moisture, resulting in dry, low-maintenance litter that does not smell. It's incredible. And Pretty Litter is virtually dust-free because it's manufactured with a special de-dusting process. So less dust, no fuss. Pretty Litter arrives safely at my door in a small, lightweight bag that lasts up to a month. Uh, now, that I get, now that I get litter bags auto-shipped, I don't have to deal with last-minute trips to the store, keeps me nice and secure in my little quarantine life, and shipping is free. But above all else, here's where it is a parent, a pet parent's hero. It's a health indicator. Pretty Litter monitors my cat's health by changing colors when it detects potential underlying issues. You won't find that kind of innovation in conventional litter. So now the podcat Bruce Willis will have the best litter ever and I can have some peace of mind. So get the world's smartest litter without leaving home by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code DAILYBEANS for up to 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com. Use promo code DAILYBEANS for up to 20, no, for 20%, not up to, a full 20% off. Prettylitter.com promo code daily beans you'll be glad you did hey everybody welcome back uh for the interview today we're going to talk about in light of everything that's been going on this weekend with the president and his health uh we're going to talk about the succession and joining me to do that is cnn legal analyst former federal and state prosecutor ellie honig ellie how are you uh good i think <laughs> um you know we are definitely in what is happening mode and the things we're going to talk about today are, are some of the, the you know, break glass in case of emergency type of amendments that maybe once in a while your eye wanders over and you go to and you think, huh, wonder what would what would call, ever cause us to need those? You know what I mean? It would be something really bad. So it's a you know, look, it's it's a it's a scary time. Um, and I think everybody look, I, I, I guess I don't care what anyone's partisanship or politics are. You, you have to be hoping and praying if you're a religious person that, that the president pulls through this, because whatever you may think of the person in the office, it's, it's one of the worst things that can happen to our government if, if the president you know, uh, is incapacitated or worse. Yeah. And it's terrible for national security and it's yep. bad as a human person. Uh, and yes. I did want to put that caveat out there and a little content warning. We're going to be talking about things in very dire terms and very stark terms. And it might sound cold, mm -hmm. but we are just discussing the legal ramifications, succession and the law concerning this election and the president's health. I just want everyone to be aware of that. Yeah. And what's happening with the president's health 
impacts all aspects of our society. I mean, it impacts the, the markets, the, our, 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 you know, our finances, our, and there's a certain, so obviously our politics, our election, but there is a legal angle that people need to understand how these things go. I mean, we, you know, we, we have to be respectful when we talk about these things, but we can't shy away from them because there are contingencies. Mm-hmm. So a lot of news outlets are talking about moving the election. Can you tell us about what the Constitution says about moving the election? Yeah. So the thing about moving the election is it actually can be done um, with limitations. So the Constitution gives the power to Congress to set a nationwide general election day and Congress exercised that power uh, decades ago, I think last century or in the 1800s to set the election day for what we all now know, the, the, the Tuesday after the first Monday in November this year, it's November 3rd. That day can be moved by legislation. Now you need the House, you need the Senate, and you need the president's signature. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is it's not just the election day. It's also those electoral college days. The same statute that sets the election day for this Tuesday in November also sets two key electoral college days. First, December 14th this year, there's a, you know whatever Wednesday after whatever Monday, but this year it's December 14th is when the electors the, uh, gather in their state capitals and cast their votes. And then January 6th, every year, no matter what, January 6th is when the, the Congress meets to receive and accept the Electoral College's vote. So those dates can be moved as well, also by a new statute, but, but the big catch is no matter what, the presidential term ends January 20th at noon. That is in the Constitution. You can't change that just with the law. You would need to amend the Constitution, which is <laughs> impossible as a practical matter between now and the, you need two thirds of both houses of Congress and three quarters of the states. There's just that's not happening. So let's take that off the table. So, yes, the election and the electoral college dates can be moved by Congress. But re- as a practical matter, it's a, the term ends January 20th, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And and I know this sounds harsh and cold, but if the president were to die between now and then and Pence were to take over, his mm-hmm. term also ends January 20th, 2021. Absolutely. And then we'd have a vice presidential vacancy, which the Constitution actually also tells us how to fill that. This is the 25th Amendment. So if the president were to pass away, Mike Pence were to become president, he could, but we've had periods in our history when we've had no vice president, but he could. The way it's supposed to work is the new president nominates a VP, and then that person needs majority votes in both the House and the Senate. And even if that person got those majority votes, Pence and his new VP expire on January 20th, 2021. Exactly. So Exactly. Barring a constitutional amendment, which is logistically and probably politically impossible. And based on succession in the Constitution, the president, the Speaker of the House becomes president. We will have a new House seated January 3rd. They will elect a Speaker of the House, and whoever that is would right. then become president under those circumstances, provided a new law weren't passed. No, even if a new law were passed to move the election beyond January 20th. Right. So let me let me throw an, an interesting asterisk on that, though. So people are probably wondering, well, okay, but what happens if just all hell breaks loose and, and things get pushed back and we just, we don't have an election in time or we, or the, or the result is being contested or there's, we just don't have a conclusive winner as of January 20th, which by the way, could have happened even before this whole COVID thing, right? There was some talk about that. So what happens then is we, as you said, we go into the line of succession, but here's the asterisk. There is a federal statute that designates the line of succession. Of course it goes president, vice president, 
Speaker of the House, which right now is Nancy Pelosi, won't necessarily be next term, but I think is likely. Then the fourth is President Pro Tempore, which is uh, which is Chuck Grassley right now. And then fifth is Mike Pompeo, is Secretary of State. But but here's the problem. There is a decent constitutional argument out there that has support from not just, you know, far extreme type views from from fairly mainstream, well-educated people that that succession statute is unconstitutional, that there should not be congressional leaders in the line of succession, that the line of succession should, in fact, go president, vice president. And then you get into your cabinet heads, whether you want to go state first or defense first or treasurer, whoever you want to go first. But if that happens and if it goes down that way and if Pelosi gets ready to take office, I would not at all be shocked if we saw lawsuits saying, no, 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 the Presidential Succession Act is unconstitutional. Congressional leaders should not be part of it. And boy, would that be uh, a circus and, and, and a controversy. Because of a balance of powers. Yeah, because of balance of powers. Right. Because the idea of, of the president should be from within the executive branch, essentially. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wouldn't put him past it to put that lawsuit out. I'm sure Bill Barr's already yeah. cooked up an Office of Legal Counsel memo stating right. that that's the case. <laughs> Yeah, talk about a talk about something that that that's declined in value in OLC <laughs> opinion, right? Those things used to be used to be treated like you know almost like gold. I mean, obviously you knew OLC was always going to more or less lean one way, but boy, now they're just churning out nonsense. Yeah, and they have been uh, for this entire yeah. term. Uh, yep. Now, let's talk about uh, quickly. Uh, well, we don't have to do quickly. We still have some time. Um, <laughs> but I want to address what happens if the president is incapacitated or dies before or uh, after the election or is incapacitated yep. when after the election results are certified. Who then is if Trump wins? And this is only if Trump wins the election. Who then right becomes president if Trump is unable to do so. It's not Pence, right? Yeah. Who then becomes, right. If, if the, so the answer is it's really up to the, the RNC or if it was the other way, the DNC, right? So the, the national political party committees have that power because remember, you're, you're technically not voting for Donald Trump or Joe Biden. You're voting for your state's electors who are pledged to that candidate. And so essentially the national party committees get to then designate who their nominee is. I mean, I think it's quite clear that in either instance, it would be, you know, Pence or Kamala Harris, depending, which not that Joe Biden's in any health danger, but I'm just saying it both ways. Um, but it would come down to the RNC, really, if, if we're talking about it on the Democratic side. I think all, all, all expectations would be that it would be Mike Pence. And then the RNC also gets to choose the new VP in that situation. Mm -hmm. And in this recent case in, in front of the Supreme Court about faithless electors in yeah. Sotomayor's ruling in the, in the majority decision, she says yep. we aren't considering what happens if the president is capacitated, uh, incapacitated. Yeah. So what that tells me is that, you know, some states bind their electors to whoever wins, whomever wins the popular vote. But that, you know, the this person in the Washington Post law professor is saying, yeah, but I mean, if the president is incapacitated and nothing was written in the laws about that because we've never faced this scenario, I don't yeah. think anybody is going to contest the RNC putting forth another candidate. Yeah, exactly. And the faith, faithless electors decision, which came down this past term, it was one of the last ones to come out. It didn't quite, it didn't say 
electors, you are not allowed to vote for anyone else. It said states, if you wish, you can impose penalties on people who are faithless electors. But those penalties are like fines or, or the person can't be an elector in the future. I mean, candidly, I think if that all came to pass, electors would say, I'm, you know, OK, the person who I was who I was chosen to vote for is dead. I'm going to vote for their number two. Like, state, if you insist on fining me or punishing right. me, like, go for it. You know what I mean? So it doesn't quite say electors cannot be faithless. It says states can punish electors who are faithless. Yeah, and and they likely would not do that. And, and I'm not even sure it's faithless, like you said. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that it's faithless. If, you know, if, if your slate is A and B and A passes away and you say, well, now I'm voting for B, I mean, that's that's about as close to the intent as you can get. Yeah. And you're a huge dick if you find somebody for doing that. I'm sorry. (laughs) But like, even if... Your word's not mine, but but playground talk, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Even if the Republicans do win this election... I'm certainly not going to be, you know, all right, well, I mean. You know how quick those fines would be paid off by a, by a GoFundMe mm-hmm. for either party, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whichever party it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there anything else we should know uh, about this very precarious position that we're in regarding the upcoming election? We're already in the election. Yeah. People are already voting. So there's no way yeah. that they can change the ballots or put up a different candidate or have a different convention. Right. As a practical matter, no. I mean, I, I do want, want to make sure people know this. Our Constitution is very good about what happens if the president becomes incapacitated, right? The Constitution, as venerated as it is, sometimes leaves us guessing. We look at impeachment, right? We just, we, somehow that was this year that we had impeachment. But basically all the Constitution tells us about impeachment is high crimes and misdemeanors, majority of the House, two-thirds of the Senate. You all figure out the rest. And you saw the mayhem that can create. But when it comes to an incapacitated president, that's the 25th Amendment, which is much more recent and much more – practical. It's much more like a, a recipe. It basically, t- it was passed, by the way, in, in 65 and then ratified in 67, you know, just in the immediate aftermath of John F. Kennedy's assassination, because the concern was, gosh, what if he had gotten shot and went, you know, went into a deep coma, but lived? Like, what would we do? So if that happens, if the president ends up incapacitated, then the vice president and a majority of the cabinet members, there's some question about exactly who qualifies, doesn't acting qualify. We have some actings right now. Um, they need they would get together and file a formal written notice to Congress saying the president is unable to fill his official duties. Power then passes to the vice president. And then if and when the president recovers, the president can certify, OK, I'm back now, Congress, and then he takes it back. So we have a specific procedure in place if that happens there. So, you know, even if the president doesn't pass away, if he's, let's say, hypothetically, and let's all hope not, but if he ends up on a ventilator for weeks, then there is a, a an orderly way to pass power to the vice president. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, because if the yeah. president is in worse condition than is being let on by the by the doctors in the White House, you know, right. which it kind of seems like, but that's all speculation. Uh, you know, how, how can he sign over his powers if he's not yeah. of sound mind to do so? Well, so there's two ways that can happen. One is the voluntary way. If the president lets, there's two ways. He could say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm going downhill here. They're going to have to sedate me. He could sign it himself and say, I hereby declare that I am or soon will be unable to fill my, my duties of office. That's it. Immediately power transfers over to the vice president. That's actually happened three times in our history. One, when Ronald Reagan, people think, oh, it must have been when he got shot in 1981. No, they didn't do it. It was actually in 85 when he went in for cancer surgery. And it's not clear that he actually formally invoked the 25th Amendment. 
but he did sign paperwork saying George H.W. Bush, then vice president, can take over. It was for seven or eight hours. And then twice during George W. Bush's term, he had to do col undergo colonoscopy surgery, so he was out for a couple of hours. He formally used the 25th to, to give power over to Dick Cheney. So that's, that's the easy way. The hard way is, let's say the president doesn't do that voluntarily or, or is sort of suddenly thrust into a comatose or you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, status, then the VP and, and the majority of the cabinet have the power to get together and issue that declaration. And, and power goes to the VP unless and until the president comes out of it. If he does, he can say, I'm back now, I'm good. There's actually another round that could happen because I think there's, you know, if, if the president comes out of, let's say, a coma and says, I'm good now, I'll take power back, he gets it back. But then there's actually a counter counter move where the VP and the majority of Congress uh, of the cabinet can say, no, he's not good. He's still not good. He says he is, but we can test it. If they do that, then it goes to Congress, oh. which has to vote. And it takes a, if Congress votes by two thirds, they can transfer power back to the VP. So I think that was more of a situation of, of, of to me, it feels like that's what they, if they were thinking about a mental incapacity situation where the VP and the majority of the cabinet said, He's had a, you know, having a serious mental or cognition issue and the president himself is not willing to agree. Hmm. But you have to have yeah. two thirds of a vote in Congress to take it away from the president. If it gets to that point, it takes two thirds to take it away. Yes. In both houses. So that's <laughs> going to require something very, very drastic. Yeah. Or unless the Republicans are like, finally, we can. Well, there's an off ramp. Uh, but yeah, maybe. Right? Who knows? Um, thank you for, yeah. for breaking all this down for us. I know yeah. it's very complex. And I also still want to make sure everyone knows if it, if we sound, you know, if I sound cold or uncaring, that is not uh, the intention here. The intention is to simply lay out uh, the succession and the rules and the and the parts of the Constitution that determine who is the president in these dire times, who has control of the country. I think it's a huge national security crisis that we're in right now. Yeah, it's a it, it is a scary time. But but I do take some solace in knowing that we have rules and a Constitution that that has you know prepared for most of the potentialities out there. All right. Well, thank you very much. CNN legal analyst, former yeah. federal state prosecutor, Ellie Honig. I appreciate you talking to me today. Thanks, AG. My pleasure. All right, everybody, stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, everybody. This Helping of the Daily Beans is brought to you by Helix Sleep. As many of you know, for the past four years, I've had trouble sleeping. I often lay awake, stare at the ceiling, toss and turn, wondering how many sheep you're supposed to count. <laughs> that never works. At first, I thought I was losing sleep because of the politics and the news and the anxiety and the gaslighting. But it turns out the other factor keeping me awake was my trash mattress. So thank goodness for Helix Sleep. Helix understands that you're unique and customizes your mattress to fit you in the way you sleep best. Helix Sleep created a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. If you like a mattress that's really soft or firm, if you sleep on your side or your back or your stomach, they customize it just for you and your sleep patterns. So everyone is happy. Like me, I was matched with the Helix Midnight because I like my bed medium firm and I sleep on my side. So it's perfect for me. But don't take my word for it. We just gave away. Helix is such a cool company because we have two listeners that were sleeping on a Trump brand mattress for like 12 years. And Helix was kind enough to hook them up with a new mattress and they love it. So, Debbie and Anne, thank you for writing in and uh, letting us know your confession about having to sleep on a Trump-branded mattress. And thanks to Helix for supplying them with a brand new, incredible Helix Plus mattress. So, go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. Take their two-minute sleep quiz. They'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. 
Joelle has one, Jordan, Mandy, me, uh, and now, of course, Debbie and Anne, and I know a bunch of a bunch of y'all have gotten it. It is seriously the best mattress I've ever had in my whole life. And, you know, it's risk-free. They have a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 sleeps. And if you don't like it, they'll pick it up for free. But you will love it. Uh, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash dailybeans for up to $200 off. Ah, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news. It's on the way. I am so relieved to be to the good news portion of the show today. It has been a very hectic weekend. I know that the news has been an absolute shit show. Uh, and it's... <laughs> It's been very hard to follow, very hard to parse, and um, I, I I feel for everyone having to hear it. And so thank you so much to our listeners for submitting their good news stories, personal and political, and their quarantine confessions, and any corrections you have, because this segment makes my day. It sort of wraps everything up all nice and leaves me with a very good feeling uh, moving on into my evening so I can have a nice peaceful dinner, go for a walk, hang out with the podcasts, whatever I need to do. So thank you for submitting. If you want to submit your good news stories or anything else, just head to dailybeanspod.com and click contact. That's where you can do it. First up, we have some good news from Margie Brown. Uh, pronouns she and her. Greetings from Battleground PA. Uh, thanks for being a lifeline and a check on our collective reality. I prefer true facts and logic to be infused with some humor and humanity, so your show is perfect for me. I'm running for state senate in very red rural Pennsylvania, hashtag rural PA, in the 25th district, eight counties, thousands of square miles of the PA wilds. Here, Dems usually get about 30% of the vote or less. In fact, people have lamented that I have chosen to run as a Democrat because I could have won had I just registered as a Republican. I already knew that. But what I want most for our area is vigorous, contested elections. And here's why. Uh, we are what the Republican Party sees as a sure thing. I'm, she's talking about her district there. So they handpick candidates to do the bidding of outsiders. Then they choose their successors. This means they need uh, the needs of the constituents are never a priority. And so we are suffering, especially from a lack of access to health care and Internet. There are usually no challengers to incumbents in the primaries and often and the seats are uncontested in the general election. Plus, I used to be a Republican, but I switched in 2014, and I'm not going back. The good news. My yard signs have gone viral several times because they were placed next to a homemade sign by McKean County Democrats that reads, Rural, not stupid, Joe Biden 2020. <laughs> You're the one. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yes, I, I'm familiar with this. This uh, I tweeted it out, this very viral photo of a big sign that says, Rural, not stupid, Joe Biden 2020. And then you see the little Margie signs next to it. A traveler snapped the photo, made it to Twitter, then Facebook, and viral. Voila. As exciting as it was to go viral in a good way, I never, repo I never reposted these on my campaign social media because people would twist that into a narrative that I was being divisive by calling some voters stupid. However, today in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Inquirer did a story about signs in rural PA, and it featured the one of the aforementioned photos of McKean County signs next to mine. The vice chair of McKean County Democrats was interviewed and explained what was meant by the campaign slogan. Now I'm finally able to share and savor the small victory by reposting that article. <laughs> I'm also celebrating because I feel I've reached my original goal of making this a vigorously contested election with the help of the county Dem committees. So what do we do when we achieve our goal early? Set a new one. Of course. 
uh, we are going for some wins. And I will celebrate any of our rural county gains or wins in PA as victories, whether I'm elected or not. May I add, rural Pennsylvanians are not stupid. We are quite fatigued with hearing and reading this stereotype from the national media at this point. So we welcome this new attention and hope it will bring us more accessible quality health care, high-speed internet and cellular connectivity, and improved and repaired infrastructure in addition to better future elections. Please give a shout-out to Amy Mallison in Austin, or excuse me, Amy Mallison Austin for turning me on to MSW and the Daily Beans. It has made my long commutes enjoyable and it has helped me keep track of all the crazy stuff we're living through. So shout out to Amy Malice in Austin. Thank you, Amy. And then there's the photo. Rural Not Stupid Biden 2020 with Margie Brown for PA Senate on both sides. Wonderful. Margie, thank you. We got to get you on our Flip It Blue segment. I'm going to have Can I Reach Out. Next up from Andy Fink, COO, DC Central Kitchen. Huh, I took the time today to support all my favorite podcasts. Beans was first. Thank you for being there every day to keep me sane. Oh, well, my heart. I work every day during the pandemic to feed the most vulnerable communities in Washington, D.C., especially seniors and kids. We have served almost 2 million meals since March and will continue to do so until the money runs out. Thanks to all the great people donating time and money to help those who are hungry and suffering, it is humbling to see the generosity of total strangers to help keep people fed in traditionally underserved communities. So, everybody, that is D.C. Central Kitchen, Andy Fink, Chief Operating Officer. If you've got any anything you can contribute, please do, D.C. Central Kitchen. And thank you, Andy, for the work that you're doing. Um, wow, just amazes me. Next up, from Nowhere's Man with two N's. It's a nom de plume. Okay, Nowhere's Man. I'm a former poet. Uh, the mixture of getting my English degree and the passing of loved ones has contributed for years of not writing. This podcast, well, both of them actually, have not only helped keep me informed, but helped me regain a smile and a sense of composure, but also was one of the the driving forces in me spending an hour tonight self-taping the first new poem I've written in years. There will be a link in the newsletter, so look for links from listeners. That's where we share the links that you all share with us. That's incredible. Thank you very much. Um, And that is, let's see, Nowhere's like nowhere, you're going somewhere, you're going nowhere. Nowhere's man, M-A-N-N. Nom de plume. Thank you. Next up, we have a correction. Woo! I did something wrong. I did something wrong. Woo woo! Thank you for watching that horrendous debate on our behalf. In the podcast, you quoted Trump by saying, stand down and stand by. It was actually stand back and stand by. Got it. The distinction is subtle, but important. In my opinion, he wouldn't even use the term um, he was prompted with. He modified it and added the standby piece. So keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anonymous Corrector. Here's a correction from Data Diva. Oh, hi, Data Diva. How are you? I love your show. Listen every day with my partner. When I sit down at my desk, now three feet from his, he always starts the day with a hopeful beans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Data Diva. I'm so thrilled I actually have a correction. Though it's to a good news story, not your content. Uh, In a recent good news, someone said they had 28 factorial chances for cuddles between children, cats, dogs, goats, and chickens. This is the wrong mathematical function. Factorials are used to find the number of potential combinations in a specific order. A, B, C, A, C, B, B, A, C, B, C, A, C, A, B, B, C, B, A. For instance, for the cuddles, you would want to use the handshake formula, which is N times parentheses, n minus 1, parentheses, divided by 2. 
In this case, 28 times 27 divided by 2 for a total of 378 different cuddle factors. 28 factorial is 3 times 10 to the 29th, 300 octillion. For context, that's the number of air molecules in 52-bedroom apartments. <laughs> Snuggly. <laughs> it was me, Data Diva, who said it was factorial. That was me. So, shame on me. When was the last time I took statistics? 1996? I'll show myself some grace. But thank you for that correction. Good call. Next up, from Anonymous, um, pronouns she and her. Finally, I have some good news to share. Dr. Tony Fauci was awarded the Sammy's Federal Employee of the Year. For the non-feds, this is like the Oscars of government service. Better yet, it was presented by the Washington Nationals Racing Presidents, their mascots. AG, uh, that's Washington Nationals baseball team, the Racing Presidents. Okay. AG. Uh, I know you haven't always been Fauci's biggest fan, but his willingness to stick it out for the good of the country despite constant harassment, death threats, and his own health issues is really inspiring to us often as demoralized feds on the ground. I know you can relate. Uh, Also, there is something to be said for having one person on the task force that isn't actively trying to kill us all. Yes, that's very true. Uh, Thank you so much for keeping us informed, giving us information on seats to flip blue, and doing so with good humor and swearing. You are welcome and well-earned Sammy, Dr. Fauci. From Stefan. Not Stefan. <gasps> the New York's hottest nightclub is called The Kink. <gasps> and it's on basically... Okay, I'm just kidding. Uh, not Stefan. This is Stefan. Hello, AG. My grandpa also went by AG, short for Albert George. What up, Grandpa AG? Uh, I was trying to tell my boyfriend about Hope Hicks having coronavirus, and he just looked at me confused. So I was like, you know, Hope Hicks is, right? She has coronavirus. That means Trump might have it, too. After a few seconds of his thinking face, he leans back and says, Oh, I thought you were saying Ho-Picks instead of Hope-Hicks. And let me tell you, it is impossible to hear anything else now that that has entered my brain. It makes me laugh every time I hear her name now. We are seriously hyperventilating at how we could not believe we never thought about how her name sounds like Ho-Picks. I haven't attached any (laughs) Ho-Picks. (laughs) <laughs> yeah now every time you hear hope hicks you're gonna hear hope hicks wonderful that's like ingram angle i call the anger mangle um anyway incredible uh next up uh from amy pronoun she and her Hello. Oh, you know, I have to tell you about one other thing that I will never hear differently as long as i live recently a very good friend of mine was a jeopardy champion named phil navy officer in the reserves Cool dude. Him and his wife, Faith. Wonderful people. Uh, And just an incredible family they come from. And hey, hey, shout out. Shout out to the Phil family. Uh, But he was Jeopardy champion. Reminded me of when I had tried out for Jeopardy many, many moons ago. And, you know, you you take the, uh, they give you a 10 question quiz. You got to get all 10 right. Then they, you sit down for a two and a half or three hour written exam. You have to pass that. Then if you pass that, you play the mock game. You show up at some, you know, casino or whatever in the, in the ballroom and play this mock Jeopardy game. They want to make sure that you can like be, you're presentable to the camera. Like you can talk to other people with your mouth because a lot of smart people have a hard time with that. So they put you up there and I'm playing and I'm losing my ass. I have like negative nine million dollars and I, I am the Sean Connery of Celebrity Jeopardy in this particular mock Jeopardy round and so I get to go last or I get to go first in double Jeopardy uh, round two so I I'm like I'm not gonna make it I'm not gonna make it there's no way I'm just too far behind so I'm just gonna fuck with everybody so I say I'll take presidents for 400 and the clue is revealed 
And it says, he commanded the First Continental Army. And I buzzed in and I said, George Washington. And we've already played a f- a f- the first full board. And I know how Jeopardy works, but I just say George Washington. And the host goes, uh, you're going to have to put that in the form of a question. So I just went, George Washington? Like that. And um, everybody kind of lost their shit a little bit. And they're like, no, 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 you have to put it in the form of a question. <laughs> and so I said, is the answer George Washington? And so now every time I hear George Washington, I have to put that question mark at the end of his name. So it's always George Washington and now Ho Picks. So wonderful. Congratulations. You will now hear that too every time. Next up, Amy, pronouns she and her. Hello, my beanie babies. I have the great pleasure of saying that I quit my job as a middle school social studies teacher on Friday, October 2nd. While I'm passionate about my subject and love teaching, the school I was working in was a nightmare. For being a Catholic school, it was shockingly chaotic and disrespectful. Coming home with a headache every day was not worth the $13 an hour. $13 an hour to teach at a private school? Bullshit. The Vatican has a bazillion dollars. Assholes. Ah, she says I can go back to subbing for that. As a 51-year-old woman, I know when and where to draw the line and what is good for my soul. Yes, a lady knows always when to make an exit. So she says, thanks for being awesome. Get out and vote in numbers too big to manipulate. Amy, thank you so much. And I'm so glad that you, you know, drew a boundary there. Fuck that school. Uh, don't tell him I said that, though. As a former Catholic school person, I'm terrified of the knuckles. So, Sister Knuckles, we called her. Next up, from Eve, pronoun she and her. Good news, I got a kitten over quarantine. She's a gorgeous little love bug who I've named Priya. And I'm including a couple of photos of both her and my wonderful pup, Seema. Seema and Priya. Oh, no, 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 no. She's a little, like, a little seal point with some secret stripes. She's so pretty. I will include these in the newsletter. Oh, there she is getting feisty with the dog. Hi, Seema. <laughs> thank you for those pictures. And thank you for ev- to everyone for your corrections and your confessions and your good news, political and personal. I love it. I love it so much. Margie, get in touch with us. We're going to get you on that Flip It Blue segment. And uh, everybody, what is, th- what is the place in D.C.? Let me get you the name of the place where you can donate for meals to those in need. It is the D.C. Central Kitchen with Andy Fink. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, We will talk again tomorrow. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of your mental health, and take care of the planet. I've been A.G., and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com.